Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am really thrilled today. And I know I say that at the beginning of every episode, but I have to say that I have an extra little bit of thrill today because I have with me one of my former residents, former chief residents, who went on to do a cardiac anesthesiology fellowship and is now a cardiac anesthesia attending. Just an all-around awesome guy. I'd be thrilled to just be having coffee with him, but even more thrilled that he has agreed to come on the show and do a really important topic. So I would love to welcome Dr. Kia Seji to the show, and we're going to talk about the perioperative anesthetic management of patients with LVADs who are coming in for non-cardiac surgery. I think this is going to be really key. We're going to be seeing more of it, and those of us who aren't trained in cardiac surgery uh, anesthesia are going to have to be doing these. So I think this will be really useful. Kia, thank you so much, and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Judd. I got to say, as an early listener of the ACRAC podcast, it's very exciting for me to be here, um, both as a fan and uh, as a presenter. So thank you for having me. Well, fantastic. Great, great, great to have you and to see you in general. Um, So how do you want to start? So I thought we could first start with a case, um, just because I think as a case presentation, this is often how we'll see patients coming into the OR, whether it's overnight when you're on call or if you're preparing for the next day. So We have a 65-year-old male with a past medical history that's significant for hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, coronary artery disease complicated by ischemic cardiomyopathy, and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, status post a HeartMate 3 implantation in 2020, presenting for inguinal hernia repair. Now, if you heard that last part, got a little anxious, maybe your palms got somewhat sweaty, your knees maybe a bit weak, your arms kind of heavy, then don't worry, because that's totally normal. And today, I hope to do the following. So we're going to talk, like Jed said, about the perioperative management of the patient with the left ventricular assist device, which is referred to as an LVAD, who presents for non-cardiac surgery. The goal is going to be to demystify durable mechanical assist devices, specifically the LVAD. And again, uh, discuss their role in heart failure, as well as the perioperative management of patients with an LVAD presenting for non-cardiac surgery by going through the background and epidemiology of heart failure, the role that LVADs play in end-stage heart failure, and then go through some recommendations for our pre-op evaluation, intraoperative planning and management, and then post-op considerations. Sounds perfect, Kia. I love it. And, you know, that case is great, right? Inguinal hernia repair, we think, oh, so straightforward. And then you give us this background um, of this patient with an LVAD. So uh, consider uh, our palms sweaty and uh, you are going to help us out. So great. As you said, let's start with some of the background. Why don't you take us through the epidemiology and context of heart failure? Obviously, we could do an entire episode or many on heart failure, but we're just going to hit the kind of key points you think are important for framing our discussion of LVADs. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, this could be its, its own podcast in and of itself. But I just really quickly wanted to give some background because I do think it's helpful for us to remember some of these things for the context. So heart failure is defined as a common clinical syndrome in which symptoms result from a structural or functional cardiac disorder that impairs the ability of the ventricle to fill with or eject blood, of which there are a variety of causes that we won't get into. But heart failure generally is uh, for the LV is uh, categorized by either left ventricular uh, with left ventricular dysfunction with reduced EF, commonly referred to as heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or HEF-REF, or um, HEF-PEF, which is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Approximately half of incident heart failure hospitalizations are characterized by HEF-REF and the other half by HEF-PEF. From a physiology standpoint, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction leads to a reduced stroke volume and cardiac output, and subsequently, poor end-organ perfusion, slower circulation times, and neurohumeral activation as methods of compensation. So according to the AHA and to the CDC, the prevalence of heart failure continues to rise over time with aging of the population and with advancements in medical care. The prevalence of heart failure in the adult U.S. population has steadily been increasing from about 5.7 million in the time frame of 2009 to 2012 to 6.2 million in 2013 to 2016. By 2030, it's estimated that over 8 million people will be diagnosed with heart failure. There are two major classification systems to stratify patients with heart failure that people will see, uh, whether they're reviewing cardiology notes or looking up patients. And again, very, very briefly, these are the New York Heart Association, uh, which ranges from class one to four and is based on functional status, and the American College of uh, Cardiology or the American Heart Association with class A through D. And this is more based on structural changes. The patients we'll talk about today are those with end-stage or advanced heart failure, and they fall into the class three through four of the New York Heart Association and class D of the ACC or AHA. Um, mortality for these patients is often quoted at about 50% survival at five years with worsening outcomes as severity increases, and the morbidity and mortality with advanced heart failure is often stated to be worse than MI or cancer such as bowel, breast, and prostate. Additionally, the overall cost to the medical system also continues to rise, and projections suggest that the total cost of heart failure will increase by 127% from $31 billion in 2012 to $69.8 billion by 2030. So definitely a, an important disease process to be aware of. Absolutely. So our purpose today is to talk about mechanical circulatory support. So let's talk a little bit about that. Give me the background about what role mechanical circulatory support plays in heart failure. Yeah, so with the context of how um, prevalent uh, heart failure is, there are unfortunately um, are only two major treatment options. So optimal, optimal medical therapy alone still leads to poor long-term outcomes for these patients with advanced disease. Um, these two treatment options... Uh, for heart failure, despite guideline medical therapy, have significantly improved the survival and functional capacity of these recipients, and those include heart transplant and LVADs. Based on the prevalence of advanced heart failure in the U.S., it's estimated that there are somewhere around 500,000 patients in whom either an LVAD or cardiac transplantation could be indicated by current national guidelines, 
But realistically, if certain limitations and constraints are taken into account, that number actually is probably closer to 125 to 250,000 potential candidates. Heart transplant offers the best short and long-term survival, and it makes it the preferred treatment option. But unfortunately, there's a mismatch in the number of available donors and those who await with advanced heart failure. And those, can, those patients do continue to have poor prognosis while they wait, despite their optimal, optimal medical therapy. Sorry about that. About 3,650 heart transplants were performed in the U.S. in 2020, and that annual volume has been about uh, stagnant around that number for quite some time. So then this lays out the role for LVADs in the current landscape of heart failure therapies. So a left ventricular assist device is implanted into a failing left ventricle, and it acts as a supplemental cardiac pump to provide overall cardiac output reduce myocardial damage, and improve systemic perfusion and microcirculation. Compared to optimal medical management, LVADs have a significant survival advantage with a reduction in all-cause mortality, as was demonstrated in the 2001 rematch trial. The current survival is estimated at about 80% at one year, 70% at two years, and 50% at seven years. About 5,000 of these devices are implanted worldwide per year, and this number is exponentially increasing. Um, and as such, as you had mentioned, Jed, that then bears the point that there'll be increasing patients presenting for perioperative care that we're going to have to manage as anesthesiologists. Yeah. And so what about the kind of physiology behind uh, the LVAD? So the LVAD, as I had mentioned, it unloads the LV. And um, what this does is it allows the, um, the resting LV, even if there's some intrinsic function, um, to be able to um, uh, provide systemic circulation. The hypoperfusion, I'm sorry, the um, decompression of the heart reduces myocardial damage again. And it ejects this blood downstream either via the ascending or descending aorta and tries to reverse some of these hypoperfusion complications that we see at end organ vascular beds, uh, whether that be hepatic or renal or pulmonary. Great. All right. So let's dive in now to LVADs themselves. Give us some background on the LVADs and how they work. So the, I first wanted to t really quickly touch base on um, some of the terminology we may still see either in notes or people referring to by word of mouth, um, as these were used to describe the designation or indication for an LVAD. So really quickly, um, these are what you'll see as BTT or bridge to transplant. And this designates patients with advanced heart failure who are or may be candidates for heart transplant, but are too unstable to wait any longer without circulatory support. There's bridge to decision, which are patients who receive an LVAD before a final decision regarding either transplant eligibility or final determination has been able to be reached. There's something called destination therapy, which refers to long-term use of the LVAD as an alternative to transplantation. There's something called bridge to recovery, which indicates that there may be a recovery of intrinsic myocardial function, and ultimately the device may be able to be removed without the need for cardiac transplantation. I say that this may not necessarily be around because CMS recently removed these somewhat rigid terms in order to be able to broaden the eligibility and expand coverage for patients who would receive them. So that's kind of the some of the terminology just to really quickly remember. So the that's first definitely helpful. 
the first generation LVAD uh, was improved was approved by the FDA in the early 90s. So we're talking around the time of like Forrest Gump or Shawshank Redemption, <laughs> if anybody are familiar uh, or fans of those. Both um, great oh, movies. Great, great movies. Uh, part of the random recommendation, an early random recommendation if you haven't seen them. Nice. Um, over time, subsequent devices have become smaller, more durable, more efficient, and tried to improve compatibility with human physiology in order to improve short and long-term outcomes. One of the notable changes uh, from the early devices to the more recent ones was the transition from pulsatile flow to continuous flow devices, um, where these continuous flow devices have a single continuously rotating impeller. The HeartMate 2 is a second generation continuous axial flow device where blood flows into the pump and then flows parallel to this rotor, almost like a corkscrew or like a jet ski, where the um, pump is existing in the extra pericardial space and then is ejected downstream, which we'll talk about in a second. Modern third day generation devices, which are your HeartMate 3 um, and your HeartWare, are more compact, more miniaturized in size, and are designed for longer durability, optimization of blood flow, and a more simplified surgical implantation. These are both centrifugal continuous flow devices where flow is more perpendicular as opposed to parallel to the rotor, and they are both intrapericardial devices. The HeartMate 3 has a fully magnetically levitated rotor that is inserted into the apex of the LV and generates up to 10 liters per minute of blood flow. Unique to the HeartMate 3 are that it has intermittent rapid changes in rotor speed to try to create an artificial intrinsic pulsatility that's aimed at reducing stasis of blood and reducing the risks of thromboembolism or pump thrombosis, as well as sheer stress in the pump. In 2018, the Momentum 3 trial, which was a multi-center prospective randomized study, found that the HeartMate 3 was associated with a 19.3% absolute reduction in reoperation for device malfunction or disabling stroke at two years when compared to the HeartMate 2. A statistically significant 9.1% absolute reduction in overall stroke was also noted, while overall survival at two years was similar. Great. So... It sounds like these are getting better as they go. Why don't you give us some more information about some of the features of the devices? And, and I understand this is going to be easier for folks um, if they have some graphics to go along with it. So we will put some links in the show notes where people can go and see what these actually look like. But to, as best you can, give us a little bit of audio description. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you said that because I do think in this instance, a picture is worth a thousand words. There's a lot of terms, there's a lot of different parts, and just being able to visualize or see what we're talking about um, will make things make a lot more sense if they're a little hazy right now. So the terminology we'll go through for the VADs, um, for the components of the VADs, are all VAD-centric, meaning they're referring to flow in and out of the VAD itself as opposed to the heart. So blood flows from the LV into an inflow cannula, which for the third generation pumps is cored into the LV apex, into the impeller pump. So it's all one unit or a small unit that's located within the pericardium. The pump then directs blood to an outflow graft or cannula, which is generally connected to the ascending aorta. A drive line that is connected to the impeller or the rotor is tunneled and typically externalized in the right upper abdomen 
which is then connected to an external console that powers and controls the LVAD pump. The controller itself can be connected to an external current power source, but it also has an internal backup battery pack. So that's some part about the design. Now, the way that it somewhat works is that the magnitude of blood flow through the LVAD, which essentially is the amount of cardiac output, I'm sorry, cardiac support that's provided, is determined by one, the pressure gradient across the pump, and two, the speed that's measured in revolutions per minute or RPMs. So the pressure gradient is defined as the outlet pressure minus the inlet pressure of the pump, which correlates physiologically to the aortic pressure, i.e. the afterload pressure that the pump leaving, I'm sorry, that the blood leaving the outflow cannula sees, and left ventricular pressures, i.e. the preload that's delivered to the pump respectively. LVADs are thus generally said to be afterload sensitive and preload dependent. Talking about extreme, so large pressure gradients, i.e. your outlet pressure is way, way above your inlet pressure, or like you have too high of a map or too low of a preload, will result in less pump flow, while the reverse would be um, true, which thus indicates an inverse relationship. It's important to remember that a decrease in LV preload can occur from a variety of reasons, whether that's hypovolemia, position changes, tamponade, RV failure, and we're going to touch on all those a little bit later. And so, Kia, let me just ask you. So it seems like this these terms are similar to the actual heart, right? Preload is the amount of blood getting to the LV. In this case, it's then getting to the actual inflow of the device, but still preload is preload. And then afterload of the heart without an LVAD in place is what it's seeing what it, it, as it pumps into the aorta. Similarly, this is what the device is seeing as it pumps into the aorta. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, the other part was the speed. So these are the RPMs we were talking about. So blood flowing through the pump is directly proportional to the speed and higher RPMs are going to generate more flow. A caveat is that too high of a speed may predispose to underfilling the LV while too low may provide an inadequate cardiac output. The RPMs are generally optimized by a patient's outpatient cardiologist to balance VAD contribution versus any intrinsic LV contribution to cardiac output. Great. All right. So let's now go through the actual perioperative management. So you've got this case you laid out for us in the beginning, patient coming in for inguinal hernia repair, they've got an LVAD. What are our preoperative considerations? Take us through your pre-op thought process. Yeah, so I think the first thing that needs to be thought of um, is actually the location and the staffing of the procedure. So as always, and especially in this instance, a multidisciplinary approach is essential in the perioperative care for these patients. The ideal location of surgery would be in a place with personnel who are familiar with LVADs that have the ability for the input or guidance of a cardiothoracic surgeon, in addition to a VAD nurse, a perfusionist, um, a cardiac anesthesiologist, though travel and potentially emergency situations may create challenges to this. Also, over time, increasing caseloads and our familiarity with LVADs have led to increased involvement and in care by non-cardiac anesthesiologists, with one study citing that non-cardiac anesthesiologist involvement rose from 43% in 2004 to 2010 to 67% in 2011 to 2015. And most of these cases occur in GI, such as procedures with endoscopies or colonoscopies, which are generally a part of the screening process. Uh, for patients who are getting transplant or looking at some of the comorbidities that we'll go over later. 
ultimately, much of this is going to be dependent on site-specific guidelines, staffing models, staff comfort, available resources, but it is recommended to have a uh, systematic approach to staffing these cases, if at all possible. One common approach from the anesthesia personnel standpoint is to consider or to recommend a cardiac anesthesiologist be involved if and when the patient is on significant pharmacological support for heart failure, has significant comorbidities, or is undergoing either a major procedure or one with potential for significant hemodynamic changes. Non-cardiac anesthesiologists are more commonly involved in care for these patients who are stable on their LVADs, don't require a lot of pharmacological support, or may not have significant hemodynamic fluctuations uh, that are expected. The last part is that, you know, Different hospital systems have different out-of-OR environments, and so the assessment of the suitability for that out-of-OR um, case um, should be um, looked at from a patient-to-patient -patient standpoint. Great. So how are you going to evaluate the patient as they come in? So in your pre-op clinic or in anticipation of surgery, uh, assessing the patient's overall status, I like to do in a system-based approach, um, considering the extent and causes of potential end-organ impairment, the impact of device implantation, and potential complications and comorbidities, as well as the severity and urgency of the current surgical problem that we're talking about. So examination for signs and symptoms of heart failure, evaluation of baseline EKGs, echoes, lab values should all take place. We won't go into everything today, but I do want to mention some important points from a few systems. Sure. So starting off with neuro, uh, there's an increased risk of prior stroke or cerebral vascular accident or CVA. This is arguably one of the most debilitating risks and can occur in 13 to 30% of VAD patients. Both ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes are increased, with ischemic being more common and believed to be due to embolic sources such as thrombus deposition at the pump, at the aortic valve, inflow or outflow grafts. So it's important to note any history and potential residual effects that the patient may have. For cardiopulmonary, a thorough evaluation should take place, including the original indication for LVAD placement and the type of LVAD that was implanted. Additionally, current heart failure symptoms and ongoing pharmacotherapy should be reviewed as these patients generally continue to receive heart failure medications such as ACE inhibitors, ARBs, beta blockers, et cetera, for continued blood pressure management. They may potentially be on rate control medications if they have a history of tachyarrhythmias and potentially still on diuretics uh, for volume management. One of the most important assessments that should take place in the pre-op setting is evaluating baseline right ventricular function. And I cannot stress this part enough, both in the pre-op and in the intra-op setting we'll touch on. So adequate RV function is critical to successful LVAD pump function, as the LVAD depends completely on the ability of the right ventricle to deliver volume to the left ventricle. Remember that the LVAD is addressing the cardiac output and disease process of the left heart, but it doesn't fix it necessarily on the right side. It's thus a very big concern, as I mentioned, in the initial peri-implantation period, as well as during chronic management periods, as progressive changes in both RV compliance and contractility can continue to take place. This mechanism is a bit complicated, but it's thought to be due to increased LV unloading that then leads to increased RV preload which subsequently influences RV geometry and increases or unmasks underlying dysfunction. 
and additional mechanisms are believed to be related to the loss of the interventricular septum and its normal participation in RV contraction or septal deviation into the LV depending upon the degree of LV unloading, which may decrease its participation in RV contraction and worsen tricuspid regurgitation. All that is to be said is that a greater severity of pre-existing RV dilation and dysfunction and significant pulmonary hypertension may suggest less reserve and a greater need for RV protective strategies and sets a higher pretest probability for the possibility of intra-op RV failure. This is additionally important in surgeries with high risk of bleeding, where a balance of over versus under resuscitation is extremely important. You therefore want to look at the function on and pre-existing dilation of an unsupported RV on pre-op TTE, investigate any history of RV failure, and ask yourself what the anticipated volume shifts or alterations in pulmonary vascular resistance for the case may be. The next thing to look at in this section is aortic insufficiency. So at least moderate AI is generally addressed at implantation, sometimes with a stitch closure of the valve or replacement with a bioprosthetic valve. So don't be surprised if you see that in this, in this patient population. About 25 to 30% of LVAD recipients may develop mild or moderate AI within one year of device implantation. And with time, the degree of AI may actually worsen over time. Uh, so it may be good to look at the recent TTEs and to compare them with prior TTEs. Additionally, some degree of aortic valve opening does appear to be protective uh, by preserving the integrity of the aortic valve structure and function. So you may also see this commented on in the TTE when you're looking at the aortic valve portion. The next thing you want to look for is the presence of any cardiac implantable electrical devices. And I'm talking about ICDs or implantable cardioverter defibrillators or pacemakers and consider their perioperative management. Generally, those perioperative considerations are going to be no different in um, patients who don't have VADs. So some of the ones we've talked about are um, there have been podcast episodes on in the past. An important thing to note, though, for defibrillator or pacing pads is that they need to be positioned on an area of the chest that is not directly over the device or the drive line. The best options are usually bilateral pad placement on opposite sides of the chest or anterior-posterior placement in the center of the chest and on the back. Usually, depending on the severity of the case, it's recommended to put these on patients prior to induction or at least have them readily available. The next thing you'll look at is either a recent TEE or recent TTE and recent cath data to be able to evaluate the patient and see what their overall outpatient management has been like and the stability of their cardiopulmonary function. For pulmonary, you do want to consider some of the underlying comorbidities such as pulmonary hypertension or other chronic conditions and evaluate for any new oxygen requirements or recent changes to pulmonary status. So moving on to heme briefly, there are a few important things to discuss. So patients with these mechanical devices are at an increased risk of pump thrombosis, which we briefly touched on before. There's multiple contributing factors, and while prophylaxis is generally pharmacotherapy, it is also important to remember that advancement of uh, device design have tried to address this issue, but it's not a perfect system so far. So these patients are going to present to us with antithrombotic therapy, often with anticoagulation and antiplatelet medications to reduce the risk of thrombosis, thromboembolic stroke, and peripheral thromboembolism. 
Anticoagulation is most commonly achieved with warfarin uh, with a goal INR of about two to three and antiplatelet therapy with at least aspirin. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. All right, we're back, and we were talking about anticoagulation for these patients with VADs. So while there's no clear guidelines on the management of anticoagulation in the period period during non-cardiac surgery. Any periop reversal or adjustment of therapeutic anticoagulation, whether it be holding or bridging or reversal, should include a multidisciplinary discussion between the anesthesiologist, the surgeon, and the VAD management team in order to plan a safe plan during the perioperative period. An expert consensus opinion from the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation states that for non-emergent procedures, warfarin and antiplatelet therapy may be continued if the risk of bleeding associated with the procedure is low. If therapy needs to be stopped, warfarin and antiplatelet therapy should be held for an appropriate period of time as determined by the type of procedure being undertaken and risk of bleeding. Bridging with heparin or heparin alternatives while the patient is off forefront may be considered. So there's, again, certainly institutional variabilities in the management of anticoagulation and consultation with the patient's cardiologist and cardiac surgeon are certainly important. A clear plan should be in place in the setting of elective, non-emerging cases that may have an increased risk of bleeding. And a common practice in this setting is to try to reduce the INR to less than 1.7 in order to balance the risk of thrombosis and bleeding with potentially further reduction in cases with a very high risk of bleeding. But I can't stress enough that this needs to be communicated and not independently decided upon. Emerging cases or cases such as neurosurgical or ophthalmologic ones may require reversal of anticoagulation. And ultimately that regimen needs to be tailored to the type of surgery, the timing, and based on the patient's underlying history and risk factors. Resumption of anticoagulation is recommended as soon as possible, and this is typically done with the heparin bridge until the INR is therapeutic. Now, on the flip side of this, these patients are also at an increased risk of coagulopathy, and these mechanisms include low or absent pulsatility, especially with these continuous flow devices, that lead to AV malformations and angiodysplasia, especially in the small bowel anticoagulation, and high shear stresses that lead to, and this, I don't know if this is still a a basic question or an advanced question, but an acquired type 2A von Willebrand deficiency. And I do admit, I had to relook up what a type 2A was, Um, but it's an acquired loss of a large von Willebrand factor monomers. Um, This is similar to severe AS. So you do get these high shear stresses that lead to a von Willebrand deficiency. GI bleeding is one of the most common complications and causes for readmission after VAD implantation. And as we mentioned before, because of this, upper and lower endoscopies have become frequent procedures in this patient population. The intrinsic pulsatility of the HeartMate 3 has not yet shown improved rates of GI bleed, and that's important to remember. Excuse me. 
Lastly, it's important to have knowledge of the therapeutic strategy for device implantation. And this is kind of going back to whether or not this patient may be considered for a transplant or if they're a bridge, because blood products are typically minimized, if at all possible, in those who are preparing or being planned for for transplant to decrease alloimmunization, uh, especially in those already with panel reactive antibodies that increases the difficulty of a donor organ match. So real quickly going over a few others. So for renal, these patients often have a history of renal dysfunction or potentially dialysis dependent due to a chronically low cardiac output. So that's something you want to take note of. You want to evaluate in hepatic for signs of signs and markers of liver insufficiency, congestive uh, <coughs> coagulopathies, congestive hepatopathy, and other sequelae. For infectious, uh, driveline infections are a common adverse effect. And this, again, is talking about that tunneled driveline that goes to be able to power the VAD. And this may occur at any aspect of the VAD apparatus, ranging from local to even systemic infection. And that incidence may occur in actually 15 to 23% um, of patients. Gram-positive cocci, particularly staph epidermidis and staph aureus, are most common. The gram-negative rods such as Pseudomonas klebsiella and fungi and mycobacterium are also associated. Those with the ability to form biofilms are of particular virulence. So it's, again, something to look for. And as I remember from rounding with Judge in the ICU, skin assessment comes first. So skin assessment and chronic antimicrobial therapies should definitely not be forgotten about. Excellent. The last thing in the pre-op period, and we should be doing this for all our cases, but often when we start to think about systems, we forget. So we always have to remember the surgical approach, not just for LVADs, again, for every, every case that we go into and think about the anticipated hemodynamic swings and the potential effects that those are going to have on cardiopulmonary function. Most commonly, these cases are going to be endoscopies, vascular access procedures, cardiology, like TE procedures, and sometimes tracheostomies. So you do want to pay attention to the location of the LVAD pocket, depending on the type of device, the location of the inflow and outflow graphs, graphs um, the liar placement of percutaneous driveline cables, and how they may relate to port placement or surgical incision, should they be necessary or noted. You have to ask yourself, is this case going to be laparoscopic or open? Because remember, the effect of a pneumoperitoneum on hemodynamics and cardiac output is different than if the patient was to be done with an open procedure. Also positioning, whether that be with Trendelenburg, um, which with steep Trendelenburg, you're going to get a significantly increase in your preload, but that may lead to an increase in uh, risk for RV strain versus reverse Trendelenburg would do the opposite. Or also prone and lateral positioning and their effects should be planned for. Okay, awesome. So that was a lot of great detail on what you need to think about preoperatively if you want to be prepared. Let's move to the intra-op setting. What do you need to really keep in mind when you're in the operating room or the endoscopy suite or wherever you are with these patients? So before we get to our classic oral board, what monitors would you put? What type of anesthetic technique would you use? A few things that are important to remember with uh, the VAD is one, that there's a power source that's required. So there's two batteries that are connected to the device, which together usually provide about six to 10 hours of power. And the device should be changed from battery power to AC or wall outlet power with the batteries available in the event of a power failure. 
It's also important to be familiar with the LVAD display, which is on the console or the VAD monitor that comes to the room with the patient. And the VAD monitor continuously displays speed, power, flow, and something that's called pulsatility index. So I really quickly just want to define or talk about what those are. So pump speed, we kind of alluded to before. This is displayed in rotations per minute or RPMs. It's set to allow for adequate LV filling and emptying with um, potentially some aortic valve opening if possible. With the HeartMate 3, you're going to see these numbers generally set between 5,000 to 6,000 RPMs. And I do want to stress that this is actually the only manipulated component um, that we can touch. The rest that I'm going to go through in a second are either calculated or derived. So the pump speed is actually the only manipulated one. The pump power is measured in watts. And this is a directly measured parameter. Typically, again, with the HeartMate 3, you're going to see numbers between 4.5 to 6.5 watts. Power usage is increased by higher RPMs or with greater flow through the pump. So this is going to be when you have presence of, let's say, uh, significant aortic insufficiency. That's going to require increased power consumption. Low preload is going to require reduced power consumption. A significant power increase with stable RPMs and flow may indicate development of a thrombosis on the rotor or malfunction of the pump itself. Next is flow. And so flow is dependent upon pump speed and the pressure gradient across the pump that we talked about before. It is not directly measured and instead is calculated from the speed and power with higher RPMs and higher power usually resulting in higher displayed flows. Normal pump flow is about four to six liters per minute. Again, these are only estimates and are not measured by an internal flow sensor, and thus they should not be used as an absolute measure of the patient's cardiac output. Even in normal circumstances, the displayed flow and the actual flow through the outflow graph may differ by as much as 20% or up to one liter per minute. The flow that is displayed doesn't include native cardiac output and circulation from the patient's LV through the aortic valve. But while this is an estimate, trends in the flow may be useful when assessing a patient's condition. So the last one is the pulsatility index. And um, this is one that may be a little bit harder to conceptualize, but I'll try to go through it um, so that it's a little bit easier. So the native heart um, still may contribute to pulsatile flow when the LV contracts and increases the LV systolic pressure and ejects blood out of the aortic valve. So then the pulsatility index is a calculated dimensionless measure of the extent of native LV pulsatility and is inversely related to the amount of assistance provided by the pump. So normal values are between three and a half to five and a half. And again, this demonstrates LVAD support versus native heart function, where increased LVAD support as opposed to native LV function results in a decrease in the pulsatility index. This may occur with depressed LV function, decreased afterload with stable RPMs, or potentially with decreased LV preload, which results in a reduction in the generated native LV systolic pressure. So Kia, let me just make sure I understand. So Basically, if the LVAD is doing all the work, it's getting all the blood out of the LV, and that would mean that the LV itself is not actually pumping anything, then you have no pulsatility index because it's all just flow through the VAD. But if you have some portion, 
that is getting ejected by the heart in a pulsatile way, of course, because the heart beats in a pulsatile way, you're going to have more pulsatility. And so that pulsatility index will go up. That's exactly right. Great. The pulsatility index itself can be used as one of several useful parameters perioperatively. So again, assuming no changes in RPM or intrinsic contractility, a decrease in PI may signify low afterload or low preload, where low afterload is generally associated with a high pump flow or power, similar to something like sepsis, whereas low LV preload is associated with low flow and power. Ultimately, remember that a VAD representative or a VAD nurse is usually in the room or should always be in the room intraoperatively, and they can help with communicating data from the VAD monitor if you're unsure. All right, so let's move to intraoperative monitoring. And this is a big one to talk about. So first, we're going to talk about blood pressure monitoring. So because there's often no or minimal palpable pulse and minimal arterial pulse pressure, intraop monitoring can be a unique challenge. So depending on the duration, the feasibility, the intrinsic pulsatility, and in the, the invasiveness of the case, Providers generally utilize invasive via an arterial line versus non-invasive monitoring with a blood pressure cuff or something that's called Doppler monitoring. We should use our clinical judgment in deciding the feasibility of these different modalities. If there is some level of pulsatility and optimal intravascular volume, then a non-invasive blood pressure cuff may be considered. The cuff though is reported to be successful only in about 50% of patients but when obtained, it is reported to be accurate when compared with the arterial line systolic and mean arterial pressures. A Doppler blood pressure is determined by, perform by uh, manually placing a Doppler probe at the brachial artery and measuring the pressure at which the Doppler signal is obtained with a manual blood pressure cuff. This methodology yields blood pressure measurements that are fairly reliable, so about 94% of the time but it's more cumbersome and time consuming. The Doppler pressures have been found to correlate more closely with systolic blood pressure rather than mean arterial pressure in pulsatile patients, but in those with diminished pulsatility and a small pulse pressure, the Doppler measurement more closely reflects one's mean arterial pressure. Invasive monitoring with an arterial line provides the most accurate and continuous data for blood pressure. And this is especially prudent when modest to significant hemodynamic shifts are anticipated and is most successfully accomplished with ultrasound guidance, again, because of the lack of pulsatility. For pulse ox, these may be also difficult to obtain given the limited pulsatility, and thus often other adjuncts such as cerebral oximetry may be used if necessary. Ultimately, if you do have an A-line, ABG analysis can be used to assess for oxygenation and acid-base status if needed. The next thing is to talk about for monitoring, uh, one of which is one of my favorites, uh, but I'm a bit biased, is transesophageal echo. So if there's a available personnel and in the right clinical setting, TE can be a useful monitoring and diagnostic tool to provide significant data that can influence intraoperative management. For example, in the evaluation of intravascular volume status, RV function, intraventricular septum positioning, intrinsic contractility, so on and so forth. Particularly if a patient's unstable or in the event of ongoing hypotension or even in cardiac arrest, TEE should be rapidly employed to assist with diagnosis and management. 
With regards to access and specifically central access or a PA catheter, many are gonna recommend judicious use if possible, given the risk of infection and these patients that have these indwelling devices. But a pulmonary catheter may be useful in patients with a history of significant pulmonary hypertension or RV dysfunction, particularly in the absence of a TE or in a provider who can't perform a TE. And then again, depending on the patient's clinical status, the invasive nature of the procedure, a central line may be useful for central vascular access and in the setting of utilization of vasopressor inotropic support. As we mentioned before, uh, defibrillator pads should be thought of or at least had Im immediately available and then other adequate IV access as you would usually think about for anticipated volume shifts. Great. Now, Kiyop, it sounds like if you can get a blood pressure with a cuff, then maybe it's good enough. But really, the most reliable thing here is going to be an arterial line. And I'm guessing that most people would want an arterial line for any significant surgery in a patient with a VAD. And then you're saying, you know, you, you want to try, if possible, to avoid central lines and swans because of the risk of infection much more than in someone without hardware. If you get that VAD infected, it's a big, big problem. So if you need one, you need one. But if you can avoid it, that's great. My does that sound right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And thank you for clarifying that. I don't want to deter people from, you know, using the what they think is the appropriate access to take care of the patient. Just be thoughtful that these patients have a device that are at a higher risk of infection than otherwise. Yeah, great. All right. What about anesthetic technique in these patients? So normal considerations for a balanced anesthetic technique should still take place. But again, a few unique or special circumstances to think about. So Due to the need for anticoagulation for these patients that we talked about, neuraxial anesthetic techniques are usually contraindicated in most of these VAD patients. Peripheral nerve blocks with ultrasound guidance are relatively safe um, in patients who are receiving chronic anticoagulation therapy. And then this is the decision to employ these are going to be dependent upon the provider and the procedure and their discretion uh, as normal. Airway management and evaluation is based on the usual criteria, but I will say to have some caution with intubation or other airway device placements, given that these patients are anticoagulated and are additionally more prone to the development of telangiectasias on mucosal services. So they are more prone to trauma from instrumentation and are more prone to epistaxis, uh, which is another frequent complication. If at all possible, depending upon the underlying RV function, negative pressure ventilation is preferred if possible. If you need to use positive pressure, depending upon the case, again, remember the different uh, influence that this is going to have on RV function and on what the patient's baseline RV function and preload afterload requirements are. So then moving into induction. So consideration for induction and maintenance of general anesthesia depend upon the degree of RV dysfunction as well as baseline systemic organ function. With an arterial line in place, a slow and controlled induction is always recommended when applicable. Induction should minimize increases in PVR and worsening of RV function. This is important in the whole perioperative period and includes prevention or minimizing hypoxia, hypercapnia, acidosis, hypothermia. And again, like I mentioned, if at all possible, limiting positive pressure ventilation, but certainly this is not always clinically uh, applicable. 
If positive pressure ventilation is needed, the vent settings and management should include avoidance of very high tidal volumes or very high driving pressures. And PEEP should be set such to prevent atelectasis and avoid overdistension, which may increase PVR. You want to also avoid overaggressive fluid administration, especially in patients who are not currently volume responsive and don't have what we call preload recruitable RV cardiac output. So if they're kind of on the end of their RV um, starling curve. Given their smaller size and location, Impaired gastric emptying would not be anticipated with these second and third generation continuous flow VADs. So when these first generation VADs were implanted, this actually was because they were big bulky devices that did impair gastric emptying. And many of these patients needed to be RSI to get to general anesthesia. But general anesthesia may be conducted without an RSI unless otherwise indicated in these more modern generations. Great, how about maintenance? So for maintenance, the normal considerations should be influenced by the patient's systemic condition, the surgical procedure, and the hemodynamic influences that we usually would think about. But a few different things for hemodynamic goals and management that I do want to touch base upon during the maintenance phase. So one is that a MAP goal, so a mean arterial pressure goal of about 70 to 90, and some are going to cite a goal of 70 to 80, uh, is optimal for balance of LVAD functioning flow and cardiac output and perfusion pressure. You wanna maintain or provide adequate preload and you wanna incorporate strategies. Again, I, I continue to repeat this, but I can't stress it enough to prevent or minimize right heart strain. So this is gonna depend on adequate preload, maintenance of afterload, maintaining adequate heart rate and rhythm, maintenance of RV function, and potentially adjusting pump speed if necessary to balance this. So for intravascular volume status, you also do want to maintain. It's necessary to provide adequate preload to the LV for functioning, and normal factors that decrease preload to the LV will decrease VAD output. And this includes our anesthetic agents, bleeding, decreased venous return. That's either by positioning, abdominal, increased abdominal pressures um, with laparoscopy, so on and so forth. Sometimes there's an imbalance of LVAD flow and preload such that the LVAD flow is greater than the available LV preload, and the walls of the LV can collapse down toward the inflow cannula and create what is referred to as a suck down or a suction event. When this occurred, the LVAD temporarily decrease, decreases its speed to attempt to promote LV filling. However, these events can precipitate a host of issues such as low cardiac output, ventricular dysrhythmias, RV dysfunction, and ultimately, if frequent and significant enough, hemodynamic deterioration. Management of these suck-down events would include investigation into the etiology, which is most commonly either hypovolemia or low SVR or RV strain or failure, and may need to be treated with either volume administration, temporary reduction in bad speeds, or possibly inotropy or afterload management. If these suck-down events become frequent, an expert should be consulted as soon as possible. You want to maintain your systemic vascular resistance and your afterload. And again, touching base on something we referred to earlier, LVADs are generally afterload sensitive and significant increases will decrease pump flow and reduce VAD output. Persistent and severely increased afterload may even lead to stasis within the VAD and acutely increase the risk of thrombosis, especially if anticoagulation is inadequate, though this is 
less of a problem with the HeartMate 3 and HeartWare when compared to the HeartMate 2 axial pump. Hypotension should be avoided if at all possible, as mentioned. And while reduced afterload increases pump flow, significant or prolonged hypotension with the mean arterial pressure less than 70 may lead to organ injury. Maintenance of SVR with vasopressotherapy is not uncommon in patients with VADs. And these are the typical drugs we think of like phenylephrine, norepinephrine, and possibly vasopressin. So that's going to be the same. You, you, if you have a patient with a VAD in surgery, they get, you know, their map kind of drifts down below 65, 60, 55. You're going to treat with your choice of phenylephrine, ephedrine, usually the first two go-tos. Um, no difference in these patients? Yeah, the only caveat again that I will say is that, like you would be for most of our other patients, you want to have a thoughtful process as to why the patient's pressure is going down. I know that uh, Dr. Freiberg and others have touched on on previous podcasts some of the components that go into your mean arterial pressure. Um, so you do want to remember your heart rate, your preload, your afterload, your contractility, and your SVR, and try to decide where you think the etiology of that low pressure is coming from. Because if this is RV dysfunction or inadequate preload, you administering a pure um, SVR uh, increasing medication like phenylephrine is not necessarily going to address the underlying issue. So generally, yes, but uh, again, with the caveat of being that these patients have an unsupported RV when compared to other patients. Great. All right. That's really important. What else? So um, again, I just reiterating the RV function, uh, we want to avoid negative inotropes, minimize increases in PVR with those mechanisms we had talked about before. You can use a CVP. Um, I know that's not everybody's favorite, but if that's the only utility or um, only tool that you have, you can use a CVP along with fluid administration to see if there's any correlation or changes. You have your TE available if at all possible. And then if you need to treat, you can use inotropic support for the RV. And that can include medications like milrinone, dobutamine, epinephrine, um, or potentially decreasing your pulmonary vascular resistance. And that may ultimately include pulmonary vasodilators, such as nitric oxide or possibly prostaglandin therapy. So next, I want to talk about um, intraoperative changes in flow. So we need to utilize multiple pieces of data to create a differential and treatment plans. And so this data includes your mean arterial pressure, your pulsatility index, TE, et cetera. So in the instance where you have low pump flow, this is typically due to low preload and can first be treated with a fluid challenge. Second, maybe due to RV strain leading to poor LV filling. And this again is managed with inotropy, pulmonary vasodilators, and judicious fluid administration. Less commonly, low pump flow is going to be due to inflow or outflow cannula obstruction or thrombosis or tamponade. And if you're kind of unsure or unclear, again, TE will be extremely useful in these settings. In the circumstance of high pump flow, I like to think of it by breaking down high um, versus low or normal pump power because high pump flow with high power generally makes me think of an obstruction or thrombosis or potentially AI. And this can be again investigated with TEE versus high pump flow with normal power, which is more often going to be due to low SVR. With significant fluid shifts or persisting hypotension, Again, consultation with a cardiologist, surgeon, um, intensivist, or cardiac anesthesiologist with VAD expertise is recommended. 
All right, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you said before that it's ideal to keep these patients in sinus rhythm. So how do we manage if arrhythmias develop? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, when possible, sinus rhythm um, is always preferred in any circumstance, as these ventricular arrhythmias may impair RV function and then lead to clinical deterioration. Um, cardiac device management is going to be the same if those are implanted as previously described. And other potential causes um, may include but aren't limited to suck-down events, um, altered ventricular repolarization, prior history of ventricular arrhythmias, so on and so forth. So we do still, in the, like we otherwise normally would, want to follow ACLS recommendations. So if the patient's hemodynamically stable, you want to manage reversible causes and treat pharmacologically if possible. Cardioversion and defibrillation, if necessary, are recommended if flow or hemodynamics are compromised. Recurrent ventricular arrhythmias should prompt consideration of ischemia, particularly from the RV, especially in patients with a history of ischemic cardiomyopathy. Note that the defibrillation or cardioversion does not interrupt the pump support. So the pump will continue to flow even if you defibrillate. So management of cardiac arrest. So I paused for a second because this is somewhat of a controversial topic. So the um, in the event of you, you have an intraoperative cardiac arrest, the question always becomes, well, do I do CPR? Do I not do CPR? Um, the AHA consensus statement asserts that withholding compressions may cause more harm than the potential to dislodge the device in patients with circulatory failure. And that circulatory failure in these patients is defined as a mean arterial pressure less than 50 or when intubated an end tidal CO2 less than 20 in the unresponsive or altered LVAD patient. So again, the concern with CPR that one camp has is that you may cause um, irreparable bleeding or dislodgement of the device, and that would lead to a catastrophic outcome. And then the counter would say that um, a dead heart's a dead heart. So no CPR leads to no cardiac output anyway. Um, some institutions- yeah, I just want to clarify here because some people may be thinking, wait a minute, why do we even need the native heart to work? We've got this circulatory support in place. And I think it's really key to remember, and you've already said this, if the heart stops working- so will the VAD because it needs the right heart to get blood over to the left heart in order for the VAD to pump the blood out. And so if the heart isn't functioning appropriately, it doesn't help that you have an LVAD in place. That's exactly right. So it's, I know I've stressed it multiple times, but I think it's a, if you remember nothing else from this discussion, it's to try to think about the heart in two separate fashions. So there's a right heart and a left heart. And this whole discussion is addressing the left where we still need to be able to manage the right. Um, just to close out this cardiac arrest portion, some institutions recommend no CPR unless directed by a VAD team, a heart failure, or a cardiac thoracic surgeon, um, given, again, this concern for cannula dislodgement. But nonetheless, and I think this is an important part of your, your stop or your pause or your patient identification or your surgical timeout before anything starts, is to discuss what the plan would be in the event of an unexpected or anticipated cardiac arrest so that everybody is on the same page and communication is clear if something like that were to happen. So other, right. device, other device yeah. complications that I think are less rare but important to remember. So one is motor failure. So this is extremely rare, but potentially disastrous. 
It may be noted with worsening heart failure, increasing pulsatility index, or a decreased blood pressure. And if this is suspected, if you have a TE available, vasopressors and inotropes until a cardiothoracic surgeon can be consulted um, should be the rule. Lastly, obstruction of inflow or outflow cannulas are also fairly rare. You're gonna note decreased flow, decreased blood pressure, variable pump power. This may be due to a thrombus or kinking or a suction event. And again, TE may be useful in assisting you to diagnose this. Great, all right. This is all really wonderful and important intra-op management. Let's go to post-op. What do you wanna keep in mind afterwards? So ideally, post-op planning should take part prior to the procedure. This is at all possible. Obviously, if you have an emergency that comes in, it makes it a little bit more challenging. But the, in the event of an elective case or a semi-elective case, um, these patients' post-op destination should be planned for prior to the procedure. And these patients should ideally be cared for in a monitored event, I'm sorry, monitored environment with telemetry and staff who are knowledgeable about post-op and potentially emergency care of such patients. In addition to recovery destination and the standard post-op management, other specific points for consideration should include management of the VAD power source, management of hemodynamic stability, significant pain management. Remember that this can also significantly increase your pulmonary vascular resistance. The determination and plan for anticoagulation resumption and then again, if these patients come with um, implantable cardiac devices, you want to have a plan in place for how to readdress their ICD or their pacemaker once the surgery is complete. Awesome. You know, and I'm going to put in a plug. I will say that when I was learning about this stuff, it was so helpful to actually see, see it in person. And so what I would recommend is if folks are listening to this and they really want to drive this home, if you have the ability to get to a cardiac intensive care unit, where you have you know patients with VADs, especially post-op, you know from having a VAD implanted, have somebody walk you through what's on the screen. All the stuff that Kia you just went over, pulsatility index. You can look at what a suction event actually looks like. You can see the you know what you can adjust and what's calculated. And I think that'll make this all you know really make sense uh, and stick. So if you have that opportunity, great. And I think that'll add to this as well. Kia, any last uh, thing you want to add before we move on? No, I think that that's a great summarization. That's one of the things that I have personally found the management of these devices and even the devices themselves pretty intimidating when I first learned about them or first heard about them. They're a very foreign concept. It's not something you get in your general training as a either an intern or early in residency. Um, so just like you had said, if you have the opportunity, either when you're on your ICU rotation or if you're on your cardiac rotation, um, talk with one of the perfusionists, talk with people in the ICU. They often have spare or older devices laying around. And so being able to actually physically see the devices and how they work is, uh, I think, an invaluable part of understanding um, how these devices are managed and makes it, I think, a lot more easier to conceptualize. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic. Yeah, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something you would recommend for the audience that you've been checking out lately? Yeah, so um, I am a podcast fan, and one of the ones that my wife um, and I have been listening to on longer drives is a podcast that was recently started in May of 2018. It's called You're Wrong About, 
So it's a uh, pop culture podcast that's hosted by Michael Dobbs and Sarah Marshall. Uh, Michael Dobbs is a journalist for uh, and a former reporter for the Huffington Post. Um, and uh, they go through um, different misunderstood media events and interrogate why and how the public got things wrong when talking about them. So it, it's a pretty interesting uh, investigation into how things were set up and then how the media portrayed it and then what people's modern day perception of those cases are. So the most recent one I think that came out was the OJ Simpson trial. So that's one that I kind of want to listen to, but it's a pretty interesting uh, uh, discussion. Awesome. That sounds fantastic. I will check it out. And my recommendation is I'll tell you, there's a TV show and I'll tell you the name in a second that my dad told my wife and me, he said, you got to check this out. He said, you know, we watched it. We loved it. And I said, it just didn't sound that interesting. We kept putting it off. We kept putting it off. We finally just didn't have anything else to watch. And so we watched it. And I will tell you, it was one of the best shows we have ever watched. I wish it had a second season right now. It doesn't. It's just one season right now, that, but I think they're making a second. The name of the show is Ted Lasso. Hmm. And if you haven't watched it, you have got to watch it. It is just such a, a wonderful show. It's hilarious. It's touching. It's fun. It's, uh, I, you know, I won't ruin it, but it's uh, about an American um, football coach, not soccer, but American football, who and for reasons I won't get into, is brought over to England to be the head coach of a Premier League soccer team. Of course, they don't call it soccer. They call it football over there. And it is about his experiences. But as I said, when I heard that description, I thought, eh, that doesn't sound so great. It is just amazing. Take my word for it. Check it out. Ted Lasso. It is a, an amazing show. Have you watched it, Kia? It's actually on the docket of lists that my wife and I want to watch. So I've heard the recommendation. I... Again, based off yours, I think it'll move towards the top of the list. Nice. Yeah, you won't be disappointed. Like you won't be disappointed. All right. Well, Kia, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jed. All right. That was fantastic. Such a thorough and excellent review. That was great. And we really appreciate Kia being here. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you've taken care of LVAD patients, let us know what you have done. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes or what is now known as Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you want to join the conversation, we're on Facebook at the ACRAC Group. We are on Twitter at ACRAC Podcast, and I'm at Jay Wolpa. You can follow us there. If you'd like to support the making of the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash ACRAC. You can make individual donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Wolpa on Venmo. We really appreciate those who have already made donations and become patrons. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Huge thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead, to April Liu, our social media manager, and to Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, who still helps out with the show. They are fantastic. Our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG podcast and Dr. Kia Seji, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.